Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It is a great blessing that we may be here again to join together in worship of our triune God. A hearty welcome to all who are present here and to all who have joined us via the live stream this afternoon. May the preaching of the gospel message direct our hearts and minds in faith and trust to our Saviour Jesus Christ and cause, our li- cause us to live our lives to the praise of him. This afternoon's service will be led by Reverend Poppy. Before we commence this worship service, let us sing Psalm 31 verse 14. Brothers and sisters, please rise and let us worship the Lord. As God's people, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. Grace to you in peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing a song of praise to our God. Let's sing together from Psalm 92, the verses 1 and 2.
In Matthew 10, verse 32, the Lord Jesus Christ tells us, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let us acknowledge our Lord Jesus. Let's do so this afternoon with the words of the Apostles' Creed as we confess it or as we, it's been put to music in hymn one. now pray to God and let's ask God for his blessing over this worship service. Almighty God and Father in heaven, once again this Sunday afternoon we're allowed to come into your presence. We glorify you, Lord, that you make this possible. We glorify you that you are the awesome God who's seated on the throne with power and with authority. Lord, you are the one who has also entered into a relationship with us. As an act of kindness, you decided to adopt us into your family. You decided to establish a covenant relationship, a relationship in which you bind yourself to us through promises. And we know you to be the faithful God. When we read through your word, then we see that you're a God who is always true to his word. Any promise you make is a promise you fulfill. Father, we thank you that we may know this about you, because you've made rich promises to us. You promised us that we are your children. You've promised to forgive our sins for Jesus' sake. You've promised to live in our hearts with your Holy Spirit so that we may know you and that we may live in fellowship together with you. Thank you, Lord, for these immense promises. We pray that you would make these things a reality. We ask that we may have great faith and that by faith that we may share in the promises. 
Dear Father in heaven, we pray that you would build up our faith also this afternoon, hoping to open your word to consider what you teach us about the sacrament of baptism. Grandfather, that we may be encouraged, that we be built up in our faith, that we realize what you've done for us in Christ, and that we put our hope in him alone. Father, we also ask that you would be praised by the worship that we offer you on this day. Grant that the songs that we sing, and our prayers, and our thank offerings, and our confession, that it comes from a genuine heart of, of gratitude before you, and that your name receives honor through us. Thank you, Lord, that you, that you work this in us. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, this afternoon I may preach God's word to you concerning the sacrament of baptism. I'm going to consider baptism by reading two passages of the scriptures. First, we're going to read together from Ezekiel 47, and then some verses from Romans 6. So I invite you to open your Bible to Ezekiel 47, the first 12 verses. Ezekiel 47, you find that on page 872 of your guest Bible. So in these last eight chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 to 48, we have the Lord's description of a new temple that he will build. In Ezekiel 47, we come to the account of of some water that, that comes from the, from the threshold of the temple. So Ezekiel 47, starting at verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east, And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand, led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand, and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swims, that swarms, will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Engleim, it will be a place for the spreading of gnats. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. 
Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. So as far as we're going to read in Ezekiel, then I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to read together Romans 6, the verses 1 through 14. you find that on page 1120. So in Romans 6, we'll start reading at verse 1. There God's word says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in grace, continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So far. Let's now sing together. We're going to sing from Psalm 56, the verses 4 and 5.
This afternoon, I may preach to you the gospel. We're going to look at what the Lord teaches us about baptism. We're going to do so by considering what the church has summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Find that on page 540. Lord's Day 26 has this heading, Holy Baptism. How does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing, and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from my body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God, through grace, because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with his spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. Where's Christ's promise that he will wash us in his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where he says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Find those passages in Matthew 28, 19 and Mark 16, 16. This promise is repeated where scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration, Titus 3, verse 5, and the washing away of sins in Acts 22, verse 16. Then after the proclamation of the gospel, we're going to sing together from hymn 48, verses 3 and 4. Dear brothers and sisters, congregation loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, we live in a society that's pretty safety conscious. If you are expecting a child, even before the baby's going to be born, then mom first goes into the hospital, she has a couple of scans just to make sure that everything's all right. Once you get into the hospital, then there's, in healthcare, there's a huge number of safety protocols. There's all different systems that need to be followed in order to ensure that there's good care for those who are in the hospital. Well, your baby who's born, then shortly after the baby's born, before they let you go home, first they have to check the car seat. Got to make sure that it's a safe car seat. And then you put the car seat into the car. You have to put on the seat belt. You have to drive a certain speed limit. And you're driving in a vehicle that's being checked over very thoroughly to make sure it's safe. There's an enormous amount of effort that goes into ensuring things are safe within our society. In the food services industry, you think of construction, you think of transportation, you think of virtually any any industry, aged care or health care, think of agriculture or recreation or policing. You think of the, the government's response to covid is really trying to keep as many people as safe as possible. It's literally in, in every aspect of life, there's a huge amount of effort in making sure that we're safe. Now, sometimes you think about that, you, you take a step back, and 
you compare it to 100 years ago, 200 years ago, it seems like there is some overreach sometimes. Things get really over the top. On the other hand, sometimes you look at it and you think to yourself, well, when you put a lot of people in close proximity together, you have some of those people who are really inconsiderate or who are really not thoughtful of the people around them, then sometimes things are dangerous. And it's good to have some rules in place to try to help to make sure it goes good for everyone. Well, you know, what's most striking is that while we put in huge effort to be safe in every discipline, there's one discipline which receives virtually no attention. You want to call it a discipline? It's in Mark 7. Our Lord Jesus Christ taught us there's one area that we need to pursue safety most of all. He criticized the scribes and Pharisees there for their human traditions. They were trying to be safe. You wanted to make sure that you were clean when you ate, and so you had to wash your hands before you're going to eat or drink. And Christ says to them, He says, what, what are you thinking? He says, Don't you realize that there's another dimension to life that you're that you're neglecting? He says, It's not what makes what you take in that makes you unclean. But he says, You become unclean because of what comes out of you. Mark 7:21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. If you want to play it safe, brothers and sisters, the most important thing is to protect your heart. If you don't watch your heart, then... Your eternal safety is at, is at stake. And so Lord Jesus Christ says here, he says, be aware of what's going on in your heart. You need to watch your heart. And the core danger is that you're conceived and born in sin. By nature, you're someone who has evil in their hearts. That's the natural thing. Sometimes I have that conversation with my catechism students, and I tell my students, I ask them the question, you know, we're talking about original sin, and I ask them, I say, do you think that little baby, brand new little baby is sinful. They're so cute and they're so cuddly and it's so wonderful to hold a little baby. And then we think about it, well, what happens at two in the morning? Well, baby wants to be fed. He wants to be fed right now. And if he's not fed right now, then he's pretty grumpy. And that becomes a habit for a little baby. If he doesn't get fed, and if he doesn't get a clean napping, if he doesn't get cuddled, and if it doesn't happen right now, the baby's pretty upset. And I says, when you get a little older, it doesn't really change. You have a two-year-old who does a temper tantrum. We can accept that in a two-year-old, but I, I, I ask them to imagine. Just imagine if I had a temper tantrum. Well, they all stop and think about that. And they try to imagine that happening for a second. And then it gives you a sense that babies are sinners. There's a lot of evil in a little child. That's the nature of a baby. Well, that's the reason why parenting's so tough. Children are sinners by nature. It's the reason relationships are so tough. It's because we're sinners by nature. It's because there's this evil within us that causes distress 
cause destruction in so many ways around us. Well, it's in this context that the Lord comes to us with the sacrament of baptism. One of the greatest gifts of baptism is that the Lord comes to us and he says, you're a sinner, you're evil by nature. You have this wickedness within you. And it comes out of you. It reaches expression in different ways in your life. But he says, I want to assure you that I'm going to save you. That I'm going to, to forgive you for all the, the evil that you've committed. And I'm going to give you a new heart so that you can begin to do what's good and right in my eyes. You want to talk about safety, brothers and sisters? You want to talk about eternal safety? Well, the greatest gift that God has given us is the gift of baptism. Because it's in baptism that the Lord promises to wash away all your sins. And he promises to renew you, to make you into a new person who will share in the eternal kingdom together with his son. I preach God's word to you this afternoon with this theme, in baptism, God reminds us of the treasure we have in Christ. We're going to see in the first place the gift of Christ's blood, and then secondly, the gift of his spirit. Now, in order for us to appreciate what God gives us in baptism, maybe it's helpful to reflect for a minute about the sacraments. What is a sacrament? It's a special sign. It's a symbol from God that Christ instituted to focus our attention on his atoning work. So Christ has these these two sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they're they're signs from him that, that point our attention to his work on the cross. He wants us to focus our attention not on ourselves, on who we are and what we do, but on him, who he is, and what he has done for us. And he reminds us that on the cross, he shed his blood to atone for all our sins. If you really think about that, brothers and sisters, if you think about the image of shedding blood, that's quite an image. Can you imagine being washed in blood? That's the, the language of our confession here. It talks about here, what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? And it says, as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul. Well, can you imagine, have you ever dreamt or, or thought of being washed in blood? I wouldn't leave you with a sense of, of being clean. That would be... It would be grotesque. It would be a horrible experience if, if somebody tried to wash you in blood. And yet God says, that's exactly what happens. That's what needs to happen. You need to be washed in blood. And the symbolism here is that by nature you're a sinner. And God comes to you and he says, the only way for me to wipe away your sin is through the shedding of blood. In the first place, that means that your blood needs to be shed. You need to die for what you've done. God told Adam, you sin, you die. But throughout the whole Old Testament, the Lord gave reminders of this to his people. And virtually all the ceremonies and sacrifices, there was this shedding of blood. So if you read, if you start in the book of Leviticus, you read first in the first seven chapters, you read about all the different sacrifices that the people offered. And whenever there was atonement for sin, the only way that was possible was through the shedding of blood. You had the the sin offering, you had the guilt offering. These were offerings which were mandatory. They were for for atoning for people's blood. And you, you killed the animal, you took some of its blood, you sprinkled it against the altar, 
and then your sins were atoned for, and you could have fellowship with God. In Leviticus 8, you come to the story of, of the priest starting his work. Aaron and his sons, they're going to start the work in the temple. Well, the first thing that needs to happen is their, their sins need to be atoned for. So they kill this goat, and they take some of the blood, and they sprinkle it over Aaron and his sons, and they sprinkle it on the special clothes that he was going to wear when he came into the temple. Or a little later, we're told, Leviticus 16, Aaron goes into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the people. And again, first, he has to kill one of the goats, he has to take his blood, he has to sprinkle it against the altar to make atonement. You have the, the sacrament of circumcision on the eighth day. Every single baby boy, had to, he had to be circumcised. There was a little bit of the shedding of blood. You have the, all these ceremonies in the Old Testament that included some shedding of blood in order to atone for the sins of the people. The Lord, he tells us that sin needs to be punished. A little later, it was with the the Israelites, they, they come into, or they leave Egypt, sorry, and they have the Passover. They have to kill the lamb and they have to spread the blood on the door frames of their houses in order to protect them from the destroying angel. Well, time and time and time again, the Lord is warning his people. He's saying, your sins have to be atoned for. The only way you can have fellowship with me, the only way that I don't break out in wrath against you is if your sins are cleansed. And the only way that's possible is through the shedding of blood. Have you imagined what it was like for an Israelite? Especially going to the temple. A couple of months ago, I just reflected with you on that, brothers and sisters. Every day, there's a steady stream of people. They bring their sacrifices to the priest in order to be, to be slaughtered. And the first thing the priest would do is, is that he would drain the blood out of the animal. And on a typical day, there was... There was hundreds, there was thousands of people who would go to the temple. And so you had all this blood that was shed at the temple. They built these, these troughs, not water troughs, but blood troughs. They built these canals going out back behind the temple and that drained on into the Kidron Valley to drain all the blood away from, from the temple. If you think about that, it would be quite a, a moving experience. You walk into the temple, you have all these animals, you have all this blood. Day after day after day, you have the shedding of blood. Now why so much blood? Why so many animals? The Lord intends to remind his people of all their sins. He is a righteous God. He can't just overlook sin. In God's eyes, it's not just sin when you when you murder or commit adultery or theft, the Lord Jesus taught us it's also the anger and the lust and the greed. And so he sheds all this blood, but it doesn't pay for it. It's just a foreshadowing. It's a symbol of, of someone that's coming, something that's going to happen. Well, Christ allowed his blood to be shed on the cross. Again, if you, if you think about his experience especially near the end of his life, first they take this crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and then they beat him on his head again and again and again. And then they, they bring him to the cross, and they drive these nails into his hands and his feet. 
And they have this soldier who, who sticks a spear into his side. There is the shedding of blood. It's indicative of the three hours of darkness, of the curse of God that comes down against sin. It's really quite striking. It's when his blood was shed that he cleanses us, that he pays for our sins. There is this, this image in the scriptures that speaks about it explicitly. It's in Revelation 7. It's in Revelation 7.14. The apostle John, he sees this great crowd of people, a huge multitude that no one can number. And he's standing there looking over these people. And they're all wearing these white robes. And then one of the elders, he asked John, he says, who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? John says to him, he says, sir, you know. And he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They've given white robes to wear and the white robes have been washed in the blood of the lamb. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ that all their sins have been washed off them. And that they're pristine clean. The Apostle Isaiah, he talks about it in chapter 1. Your sins are like scarlet, but they become white like wool. It's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that he washes us in his blood so that we stand before him cleansed and pure. You have the prophet Joshua, sorry, the high priest Joshua. He's serving after the exile. In Zechariah 3, we're told of Satan accusing him for all his sins. Zechariah gets to see this vision in the throne room of God. And Satan's standing there and he's, he's lobbing all these accusations for all the sins that Joshua had committed. And then the Lord rebukes him. And then the Lord commands the angel standing next to Joshua to take the filthy clothes off him and to clothe him with pure vestments. Give him clean clothes. He also was washed in the blood of the Lamb. So he is able to atone for the sins of the people and to act as a mediator between God and his people. Well, since Jesus Christ has come, brothers and sisters, we don't need the shedding of blood anymore. It doesn't have to happen. We're really thankful for that. It's actually, it's really yucky. You have to do that all the time. Well, since Christ shed his blood, we don't have to do that anymore. The Jews, they didn't quite realize that right away. And so for the next 40 years after the death of the Lord Jesus, they kept sacrificing at the temple and that only came to an end in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. But then the thought behind it is something that our Father really wishes to impress upon us. We need to be washed. We need to be cleansed of our sins. And Christ needs to do that for us. And so the sacrament that Christ instituted is the sacrament of baptism. Instead of having people shed their blood, Christ told us that now we have to, to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the symbolism then, brothers and sisters, it's symbolism of having all your sins washed away from you. Now probably, if I had to guess, I'd say that most of you were baptized as infants. You probably don't remember that event. But if you're baptized as an adult, then oftentimes it's quite a different experience because as an adult, you, you know of your past. And you know the evil that you've committed. You know the sins that you're guilty of. 
And if you come to that point that you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then God comes to you and he, he has this definitive moment where he not only includes you in his covenant community, he not only includes you in the church, but he also washes away all your sins. The water of baptism is a washing away. It's, it's a washing. It's a symbol of all your sins, all the past. Everything that you've ever done is taken away from you. There's no more guilt. There's no more sin in God's eyes. That's all removed from you. Through baptism, you're clean. You have these pure garments. You stand in God's presence, and he's delighted in you for Jesus' sake. Well, that's such a, an incredible gift of God. That's something that, for us who have been baptized as infants, it's an incredible promise that we need to reflect back on. You know, as, as we get older, then, then we come to recognize the evil that is in our hearts. And we see what kind of impact that evil has in our lives and the lives of the people around us. There's so much conflict in relationships. There's so much brokenness. Sometimes we're really sad about the, the gossiping or the backstabbing that we do. Sometimes we're sad about the, the same sins we go into. We're greedy. We, we spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about money. Or we're people who get angry. And we hold on to that. We can't easily let it go. We're people who give, give lust a place in our hearts. And we think about that and we keep going back to that. And the Lord, it's in your baptism, he comes to you and he says, I'm taking all of that away from you. All the guilt for all your sins is washed clean. And so he encourages us to reflect back on what we've received in our baptism, to remember what Christ has done for us, and to build a life on the base of those promises. And it's actually really quite striking in the Bible when you, when you read through the scriptures, there's a couple of other images that the Lord uses for, for baptism, for the water of baptism. It's not just washing, as in the washing away of sins, one of the other ways used is, is separating. The water of baptism separates. Separates believers from unbelievers. One of the powerful ways that God demonstrated that in the Old Testament was through the flood. It was the water of the flood that God used to separate the believers from the unbelievers. No one is family. The one righteous man, he separated through the water of baptism from all the unbelievers who are destroyed. The Apostle Peter, he picks up on that, 1 Peter 3, verse 21. He says there that this water of the flood corresponds to baptism, which now saves us. So as the flood separated believers and unbelievers, so baptism now separates the believers from the unbelievers. When you are baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus then you are included as part of the special community of God's people. You're set aside from those who don't know God and those who don't serve him. It's a really powerful gift that God gives you. Something that the, the form for baptism, it reflects on that. If, you, if you're reading your, your psalm book, actually maybe we'll do it together for a minute. If you want to turn with me in your psalm book, page 598. First you read through the, for the form, page 596 and 597, and on page 598 you get into the prayer. 
I'd just like to look with you at the first paragraph of that prayer. So page 598, prayer before baptism, that we pray to God, we say, Almighty, eternal God, in your righteous judgment, you punish the unbelieving and unrepentant world with the flood, but in your great mercy, saved and protected the believer known as family. You drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and all his hosts in the Red Sea, but led your people, Israel, through the midst of the sea on dry ground, by which baptism was signified. Both the flood and the Red Sea were means by which God distinguished between believers and unbelievers. And they're symbols of baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, the first verse is there. It talks about the Red Sea. is also another symbol of baptism by which God separates between the believers and the unbelievers. And so if you've been baptized, then that's a really powerful symbol from God that you've been set apart for his service. You're, you're not included with the rest of humanity under the destruction of God because of your sin. But you've been washed. You've been set apart, devoted to the glory of God so that you may live to know him and to live with him and to praise him for the rest of your life. Well, again, brothers and sisters, it's good to, to reflect on that, to realize that, that you're different, you're distinct from the people of the world. And that also is an impetus, later in the form it talks about that, how you need to, to live as those who are distinct from the people of the world. Well, the water of baptism also carries another point of symbolism, we just read a moment ago that, or we just reflected a moment ago on the fact that there's a river of blood that's pouring out of the temple and going down into the Kidron Valley. We just read from Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 tells us of another river that comes from the temple. Only this time, it's a river of water. Ezekiel has this vision. He first sees the temple being built, this magnificent, beautiful temple, and then part of the vision, near the end of the vision, chapter 47, he sees this water. It starts off as a little stream that's trickling out. And the further the stream goes out, the bigger it gets. It gets deeper, it gets wider, and it becomes this huge river that flows off into the sea. And the scripture tells us that it's living water. It's pure. It's clean. You think of, of the water that comes out of a spring, or you think of glacier water. It's, it's pristine, clean water. And then this river eventually flows into the sea. It's really quite remarkable what happens when the river flows into the sea, then instead of the water becoming brackish and this, this living water becoming salty, then we're told that the sea becomes fresh water. And that the nature of the sea changes. And, and if, you, if you think of the, the landscape, he's talking about Engedi. Um, and Engalim, and when he talks about the, these two places, then what he's referring to here is the, the Dead Sea. So you have this river of water that goes out from Jerusalem, flows down, and flows into the Dead Sea. I'm not sure how many of you have made it to Israel. We had a few people in our previous congregation who had been there, and they went to the Dead Sea, and they take pictures of themselves, and they're in the sea, and they're floating on top of the sea because it's so salty. And they say that the Dead Sea, it has very little life in it because the water is so salty. It's, it's way too salty for anything to live there. Well, now what happens is this fresh water, this living water from God comes into the sea and the sea starts teeming with life. 
There's swarms of all kinds of different fish. It's not just one kind of fish, but there's all kinds of different fish. And the whole sea changes. And so there, there's all these fish and all these fishermen who are able to, to cast their nets in and to catch the fish. And alongside of this sea, we're told that there's, there's all these trees that are growing up and that they're fruiting. Every season, every month, they bring off more fruit and more fruit. Well, the point is that there's a river of blessing that flows from the temple of God. And then you read that, you kind of wonder to yourself, well, how is that fulfilled? What is this referring to? Well, the temple, spoken of Ezekiel, it was never built. You had the tabernacle in the desert wanderings. You had the temple that Solomon built. And Solomon's temple was destroyed in the exile. And then it was around that time that Ezekiel, he prophesied about this very great temple. But this temple was never rebuilt. When the Israelites came back afterwards, they built another temple. It wasn't on the pattern of Ezekiel 47, but it was another temple. And it was actually not even as magnificent as Solomon's temple. And then later in history, we also read the story of Herod. King Herod built a temple for the Jews, and it was quite a a magnificent temple. But again, it was not the temple of Ezekiel 47. And so then you, you wonder, well, what's it really all about? And the answer is, It's a vision of the coming of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this temple. When Christ came, that he not only stopped the flow of blood, but he also poured out many blessings upon his people. And he told his people that these blessings would come through the work of the Holy Spirit. When he poured out the Spirit, then he poured out this river of living water. And wherever the Spirit goes, then he brings new life, and he brings blessing to the people of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he talks about this role of the Holy Spirit, John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so what God's telling us here is he's telling us that the prophecy of Ezekiel was fulfilled at Pentecost. When Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, then he poured out his Holy Spirit on his church. And it's through the, through the gift of the Holy Spirit that many of God's blessings were poured out upon his people. And now what God does for us is he tells us that this is one of the blessings that comes to you through your baptism. If you reflect on, on the forgiveness that you receive in Jesus Christ... But I always tell my catechism students, the forgiveness deals with the past. Forgiveness is about all the things you've done in the past. You may have committed many sins in the past, and when God washes you with his blood, then all those sins are forgiven, and you're cleansed from all of it. But the question remains, what happens about the future? How does, how does it change for you in the future? How do you become a new person in the future so that you don't keep doing all the things you used to do? And that's the gift of God's Spirit. 
is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that he gives you his spirit. He gives you the living waters. And it's through these living waters that you become a new person. Then your heart is changed. Then your desires are changed. Then your affections are changed. Then your will becomes renewed. And so it is through baptism that the Holy Spirit cleans you. It's as if he lives in your heart. and You have this, this living water, this spring of water that wells up within you. And it's full of, of cleanness, of goodness. And it washes you clean and it makes you into this new person. One of the places that God explains this work of the Spirit is the passage we read together from Romans 6. Romans 6 verse 3, the Apostle Paul, he asks, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Jesus was, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And Paul explains, he says, what he, what he really means here is he's saying that if you're baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, then you share in that death and resurrection. Not physically, but spiritually. Your old nature is put to death. And your new nature is raised to life. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that God makes you into this new person. You're no longer enslaved to sin, Paul says in verse 6. If you really think about that, that's it's a glorious promise, brothers and sisters. It's something for, for someone who's baptized later in life that they can look forward to. They're baptized and God promises to make them into a new person and to change them so that all the sins of the past, they're not only wiped away, but they have a hope for a different life in the future. And for us who have been baptized as infants, it's something for us to reflect on. It's in your baptism that God promises to change you and to make you into somebody new. And that's a really important thing for us to reflect on. It is God who does it for you, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we try hard. We think that we need to change our life. We need to be different and we need to do it. We need to make it happen. Yet the, the message of the gospel is that Christ does for us what we have failed to do. Christ has done it. He shed his blood to pay for all your sins. And he poured out his Holy Spirit to renew you, to make you into a new person. And so at the end of the day, he does for you what you fail to do or what you can never do. You still have to struggle against sin. doesn't mean that, that you never struggle. It's never difficult. But it does mean that sin doesn't have the final say because Christ is your Lord. And that's why faith is so important. You must believe in the Lord Jesus. You must accept the promises that he's extended to you in faith. And so when you're in the struggle, when you recognize the sin, when you long for a new life, then the greatest thing is to focus your attention on Jesus Christ and to trust him to do for you what you're unable to do for yourself. The Lord, he will work it out for you. That is his joy. The Spirit of God promises to renew you 
so that you come to hate sin, that you delight to do what's right. So when you read through the Psalms, you have many expressions of, of faith of God's people. It's really raw, and it's out there. And they talk about the key theme of the Psalter is, is the power of God, the sovereignty of God to help his people. They cry out to the Lord in dependence upon him. And time and again, they attest to the Lord's power and his help in their lives. That's the, that's the intention that the Lord has for you, brothers and sisters, that, that as you look to Jesus Christ, as you reflect on the promises that he's extended to you, that you also may share in his power and in his glory. He wants to, to bring you into eternal glory. And he sent his son to make that possible. And he's given you this sacrament, this sign, as an indication that he will bring to fulfillment the promises that he's made to you. And so he calls you not to focus on yourself and your own limitations, but to focus on your Lord Jesus and everything that he has done. Remember your baptism and trust that Christ will work it out in your life. Amen. Let's now sing together. We're going to sing together from hymn 48, the verses 3 and 4. I'll call upon the Lord in thanksgiving and prayer. In our prayer this afternoon, we'll remember the wedding, brother and sister Dave and Shimon Bohos. Thank God that God brought them together yesterday. We'll also remember our brother John Mahoney. He's still in the hospital. The doctors are still trying to, to sort out what exactly is going on. He's a very sick man, but they don't quite know exactly what it is. So we'll pray that God bless the work there and that God look after our brother. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, 
We thank and praise you for the sacrament of baptism. Thank you, Lord, that, that you give us something that we can look at, an event that we can point back to and remember, a time when you wanted to assure us of your love towards us, that we're included in your family, that you'll forgive us our sins, and that you'll renew us through your spirit. Father, thank you for reminding us of your love in Christ. We have the saying that seeing is believing. It's really beautiful that you, you take our, our limitations into account. You know, Lord, how often it happens to us that we tend to focus our attention on ourselves, on the, the good things we do and the strengths we have, or many other times it's on the weaknesses that we have and all the sins that we commit. And then sometimes it can be really disheartening and discouraging when we, when we see all the sin. Father, we thank you that you promise us that you wipe it clean through the blood of your Son. We thank you also for the hope that you give us. At times we can be hopeless in ourselves, but, but you remind us that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you make us into new people, that our old nature is crucified and put to death in Christ, and that the new nature is raised to life together with him. And through your Holy Spirit, you enable us to flee from sin and to live holy lives. Father, we pray that these things may be a reality for us. Help us to look to Jesus in faith, to trust him for the forgiveness of all our sins. And out of love for him, Lord, help us that we may flee from sin and do what's good and what's right in your eyes. Please live in our hearts with your Holy Spirit and please draw us to yourself so that we may share in the righteousness of Christ and eternal life. Your Father in heaven, we, we also pray that you would keep us separate from this world. It is through baptism that you remind us of the separation that you have that you've instituted. You've put us apart from the people of this world as your own precious possession. We ask then, Lord, that you would help us to maintain that. By nature, we're, we're evil and we're attracted to the, to the evil around us. We usually fall into that. We pray that for Jesus' sake, that you would take it away from us, that you change our hearts, that you protect us. Help us to realize that we are holy, that we're devoted to your glory. Help us that we may be sanctified, that we live for your, for your honor. Dear Lord in heaven, we pray that you would continue this work in our lives so that at the last day that we may stand before our Savior, that we don't have to be afraid of him, but that we can have communion with the one that we walked with through our whole life. Please build up this communion through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we also wish to thank you for the, for the other blessings that you have given to us Thank you for the gift of marriage that you've given to our brother and sister, David Shimon Bolhaus. I'm so grateful to you, Lord, that you've given them to each other in marriage. You, you've been very kind in, in allowing them to, to make this commitment to one another. Now, we also wish to pray, Father, that you would please bless them with a rich measure of your spirit. Grant that they may have much joy in each other. Grant that they're able to help each other in the service of your name. That they can use their, their different gifts to build each other up and encourage one another. And Father, we also pray for them that if it's your will, that you would give them children. Grant that they may receive children from you and that they can have a lot of joy in their family and that it may go well with them in every way. Father, we, we thank you for this, this gift of marriage. Thank you for the, for the married couples in our congregation. Thank you, Lord, for the, for the rich blessing that you've given in our families, that there's much love and faithfulness. Thank you that through that, that that there's much blessing that comes in our family and, and to many around us. 
Dear Father in heaven, we, we honor you for this beautiful gift. We pray that, that we may continue to hold that in high regard. We live in a society that's lost view of the, the gift of marriage. They don't know you. They don't know about the love and the faithfulness that you give to your people. They don't know about the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church and how that's reflected in marriage. And so they're, they're quite lost because of that. We ask, Lord, that you allow us to remain separate in this as well, that we always remember you, and that we receive this as a precious gift out of your hand. I also pray for the young people who are not married, Lord. We ask that if it is your will that you allow them to find a, a spouse, pray, Lord, that you would please be near to, to the young people, that you would be a father to them, that you grant that they can enjoy the time when they're single, that they're able to use that time in, in service and joy, joy before you, and also please help them to be prepared to take up leadership and to, to fill the roles of, of husband and wife in marriage. Lord, we also pray that you would please take care of the children in our congregation. We ask, Lord, that you would put a protective hedge around them, that you keep them safe and, and close to you. Be with the, the young families in our church, Lord. Grant that the moms are able to look after their children, after the babies, and grant that that may go well. Pray for a blessed relationship between, between the infants and their, their mothers, and that you would please grant that, that there can be a lot of love and, and kindness and sensitivity, and, and that the children can, can experience something of your love. Sometimes it's also a really difficult time, Lord, and we pray that you, you be near to, to us as families, and you carry us through those difficult times. I also wish to, to ask for blessing over the fathers, that they're able to provide leadership in their families and, and that our families may, may rest under your blessing. We also pray, Lord, that you would please be with the, those children in our congregation, those members who have special needs. We have some members who, who have limitations in different ways. We ask that you be a father to them, that you carry them through that. We also pray for, for the work of Eucalypt and for worthy hands. We want to ask, Lord, that you would please bless the work that's happening there Bless the building projects that are going on. I also pray, Lord, that you would please grant the personnel that they're able to find people to, to serve there, to be able to look after those with special needs. Lord, it's often a rich treasure to be able to care for your special people. We pray that you give us a vision for that, and that you raise up a, a generation of people who have a heart for it and who are able to do it well. And we pray the same thing for Fairhaven as well, Lord. We're grateful that we can cooperate together in caring for the seniors of our church. At the same time, Lord, we ask that you please provide for Fairhaven, that they have the staff that they need to be able to look after the residents. We also pray that you please bless us as families, that we may care for our parents, that we, that we love them, that we look after them, and that together we cooperate in, in providing for them in, their, in the, the end season of their lives. In this regard, we also wish to bring before you Brother John Mahoney, Lord. He's an old man. He's, he's really quite sick. The doctors don't know, know exactly what's going on for him. Pray for your blessing over the, the tests that they do, that they're able to ascertain what it is. We also pray that they're able to help our brother. Most of all, Lord, we pray that you would be near to him, that you comfort him, and that you provide him with a rich sense of your presence. Please give him relief from pain, and please help him during this time. Thank you, Lord, that that you love us, and thank you for your care for us. And thank you that, that you sustain us also during the difficult times. Your Father, we also pray for the other senior members of our congregation. There are many who, who have various ailments and who face the, 
the breakdown of the body in different ways, please surround them and, and love them and care for them. And grant that we're able to also show that to them in our dealings with them. Father, we pray that you please accept our thank offerings now. About to have a collection for the work of Pindari. Ask the Lord for a blessing over the work of Pindari. I want to pray that you would be with these men who are coming out of addictions. Grant that they're able to know the gospel. That they can grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless the work of, of those who are there. That, that they may provide help for them. And that it may go well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So brothers and sisters, at this time you indeed have the opportunity to give your thank offerings to God. The collection is for the work of Pindari, and thereafterwards we're going to sing together from hymn 57, the verses 1, 2, and 3.
Receive now the blessing of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.